0: Greetings, future fossils. Welcome back to another episode of the podcast that explores our place in time. And who better to ask these questions about the unique significance and historical resonance of the moment through which we are all stumbling than mythographer, mystic, poet, historian William Irwin Thompson. One of my favorite minds alive today, someone who's sweeping synthesis of ideas pioneered a new mode of stand-up performance philosophy he calls Wissenkunst, or knowledge art. This guy is extraordinary. His doctoral thesis is still in print over 40 years later, The Imagination of an Insurrection, which is about the Irish Revolution of 1917. He taught at Cornell. He taught at MIT before leaving academia, where he felt, he said, like an atheist at the Vatican and forged a new counterfoil institution, a post-academic intellectual concert called the Lindisfarne Association whose roster reads like a veritable who's who of influential latter 20th century thinkers. His most recent book, Thinking Together at the Edge of History, looks back on 40 years of Lindisfarne, reflects on his successes, his trials, his relative failures, at least self-perceived. And it's a beautiful work, like all of his books are. I was lucky enough to interview him twice already before I even started this podcast, and I'll link to those interviews in the show notes, or you can find them on my YouTube channel. But this one is a really different conversation qualitatively. It's much more personal in many respects than the first two, and it's a really beautiful contemplation piece for any of us who are curious about how we can Found and carry forward those vital institutions into our increasingly metamorphic age. But before we get started with this special two-part episode, I just want to take a moment to thank some new people who are contributing as patrons to the Patreon subscription option for this podcast at patreon.com slash Michael Garfield. Sylvain, Catherine Marie, Anthony DeBiasio, and Brandon Simmons, thank you all so much for throwing down on this it makes a huge difference in my ability to edge out of other less satisfying or helpful hustles and edge deeper into my my work my calling as a midwife to new myths and my efforts to help rewild the so-called singularity again If you want to help this show out, you can sign up at patreon.com slash michaelgarfield or you can just search for Future Fossils Podcast on Patreon and there you will find an extensive archive of not just uh, patrons only, but also free and public recordings, music talks, writing, all sorts of cool stuff that I will love to give you if you're not already acquainted with it just published the Moogfest fest workshop that i taught for you tech geeks out there the uh the talk was live looping as applied techno shamanism so if you're interested in music or in music technology or just in the occult and esoteric dimensions of performance i think you will appreciate that also those of you who have subscribed rated and or reviewed the show on itunes thank you so so very much It's really important to me that we get this podcast into the ears of the people who will appreciate it, all of them, if possible, and the best way to do that is to increase our ranking in the bizarre, arcane, mysterious algorithms that determine how this podcast is served into the feed of those friends-to-be. So if you are broke but would still like to help the show, then please go over and give a five-star review to Future Fossils for being among what seems to be a rather scant offering of podcasts, trying to help people take the long-term view and think about how we can be better ancestors. Anyway, thank you all so much for listening. I really appreciate it. Feel free to join our Facebook discussion group, Future Fossils. Group on Facebook, or just reach out at futurefossilspodcast at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you. Always taking recommendations for new guests or new topics to consider for the show. Love you so, so much. Thank you. And here we go into our wonderful two part conversation with William Irwin Thompson. Hi, how are you? Pretty
1: good. Good morning. Your uh, photograph uh, on Skype is much darker than you are now. You have lost your suntan.
0: Oh, yeah, and the the Google Glass has been in the closet for a few years.
1: (laughs) Yeah, things like Google Glass and Kindle books, uh, I think, are gimmicky things that come and go, like uh, wire recorders or floppy disks or things like that.
0: Yeah, I think so. I've been, I've been paying attention to. I've actually had this. This is not what I wanted to talk with you about today, but it, I, I do find it fascinating. There's, there's a uh, you know this company Magic Leap, and they're trying to do away with the screen entirely and project an image directly into your eye.
1: <laughs> and, no thanks. <laughs> yeah, I was
0: like you know, you combine that with like Radio Lab just put out a an episode on using artificial intelligence for conversational synthesis to like fake human voices of a specific Mm -hmm. people and uh what they call facial reenactment which is like yeah like copy and paste your facial expression onto the video of another person and so i'm i've been it's emojis gone
1: wild yeah
0: totally and also it's it's sort of the end of the recording as admissible evidence So it's really confusing to me how we're going to make it as a a society in, you know, in that where we, we can't agree. It's like bad enough, the Cambridge Analytica stuff. I don't know.
1: Well, you know, if you look at, like, the rise and fall of the Maya and collapse, they, you know, deforested, uh, because they were into pyramids, and they were so addicted to having a zillion pyramids that they completely destroyed their environment. So, it's a characteristic of bacteria and human beings to, you know, exhaust their ecotone. Gosh. So, how are you? I'm fine. i uh, hanging in there in my, entering my 80th year, and, uh uh you know still well i pretty much in terms of writing i i think i've completed my career i don't feel uh you know a strong compulsion to uh Research or write a new book I think with 24 books I've said what I have to say and I think it's oftentimes with authors and exercise an egocentric vanity that they feel they don't exist unless they're admired and reviewed you know the Norman Mailer Syndrome and uh, I don't want to do that to my readers and inflict stuff that's not anything but a gesture of you know Uh, egocentric gratification so i think i'm done there and it's it's good to know when you're when you are done and i think the millennials you know you can help me out on this uh are a different breed a different generation i don't think i you know know how to talk to them um or share their philosophic worldview uh and maybe even Philosophic Worldview is a gesture of my generation than theirs. So uh, I write poetry all the time, but I don't uh, do essays or big research projects. So that's coming into being sort of wrapped it up for me.
0: Yeah, I noticed that you called Thinking Together at the Edge of History your last book in the book. Yeah. And I was like, yeah. It's kind of poignant. I was like well yeah. okay now that I now there's there's a there's a uh, it's been delimited. I'm capable yeah. of reading everything that you've written. I'm not there yet, but I'm getting closer,
1: yeah yeah well, you know generally it's the act of death that uh, creates a closure that allows a writer to be absorbed and uh, really begins to live in the culture uh posthumously and so now with this complex virtual reality and multiple realities uh, that you describe or we're describing um, one can you know do that earlier and still survive one's own erasure to use a Derridian kind of concept uh, so I'm you know you uh, know I guess you would say, moving into the spiritual zone that is not defined by doing, but more being. And so there isn't the compulsion to say, hey, notice me, review me, Uh, I'm here. And uh, pretty much in my career, I've sort of noticed that it was like a cocktail party where you go in, To the room and everybody is looking over your shoulder at the entrance to see if a celebrity just walked in and they're not really making eye contact with you. And so uh, it's always been difficult to get the attention of the culture and get, you know, books reviewed. I don't know if even coming into being was reviewed by the New York Times. Certainly, the memoir of Lindisfarne was not. You know, that was a small press activity, and there wasn't, you know, general interest of the mainstream culture. So one has to, uh, you know, accept that and not fight it and say, hey, you know, look at me, respond,
0: yeah. Well, you know, for what it's worth, I, I do think that you know, there's throughout your work you you repeatedly refer to the the stuff that you and the other members of or the other Lindisfarne fellows accomplished as sort of a crocus heralding spring. Yeah. Uh, the first flower and then it snows and it's buried. And I think that's that's really like that's also contained in the your curious decision to name this this group and this project after a sort of doomed, <laughs> you know, this like early Christian group that that was. Uh, as i understand it like unable to maintain in the face of a viking invasion and yeah no it got wiped out by the vikings in 793 but you know aiden founded
1: it in 635 so from 635 to hence you know my address on skype uh to 793 is a goodly length of time and by that time It had Christianized England, and so uh, Celtic Christianity and Augustinian Christianity coming from Rome sort of met in the heart of England. And so the transformation (coughs) was affected as a shift from what you might say the Dark Age to the medieval period. So it wasn't a failure, but it... um, it was um, a time-bound event, a concert of ideas, as I use the phrase in uh, the Lindisfarne memoir. So um, that's not bad, you know. that Most instant Bauhaus, you know, lasted even I think a shorter time, and it was highly influential in the Chicago School of architecture and things like that.
0: It's funny. I was reading, thinking. I was reading Thinking Together at the Edge of History. In uh, sort of loose parallel, actually, like I was going back through your your bibliography and reading passages about Earth at the same time. And and in there, you mentioned this uh, like collapse of cultural authority and political power in the United States. And it's interesting to me how Lindisfarne was seems to have performed in sort of a counterpoint to that. That, you know, that you say in passages about Earth that it's sort of a uniquely American problem that we can't even tell the difference between power and authority. And it feels like this notion of writing, like the way that you described it in that book was, you know, that once upon a time... uh, you know, the the academics were sort of laughed out of DC, but that they were still able to go back to Cambridge and set their their works in motion that would influence the culture in the years to come and that 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 those two things were still possible. And I'm curious to know whether you you know it's it's been over forty years since that book came out and I'm curious to know, like looking back over the work of Lindisfarne, if you feel that this group managed that that or 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 where where the sort of like created discovered line is with respect to being ahead of your time and and sort of receiving a, a prescient echo of something that will be versus actually like laying the seeds and the foundation for that thing to come
1: uh, well the the i think one has to take the second book uh as a kind of um, you know, diptych with passages the At the Edge of History uh, which did have, was highly reviewed in uh, rave reviews in the New York Times um, performed the trope of The individual and the civilization and the the switchback trail as I climb up to go to the monastery at the top and then I use the metaphor when you come to the edge it looks like you can just touch it and then the switchback goes in the opposite direction so in edge which performed the shift from say industrial to post-industrial or ecological whatever you want to call it um, you know I uh I played with that idea and Jerry Brown was one of the few politicians who was kind of interested and I sort of met with him and and I was too much of a purist I was actually invited by Nelson Rockefeller to serve on his presidential brain trust commission to run for the president and I wanted to have authority with let us run and no power <clears throat> So I said no, uh, and I said no to all the political elites in Manhattan, and that probably was a mistake. I probably should have been more engagé and accepted it and and made a a committee on the environment and the ecological movement and had all the Lindisfarne fellows like John Todd and and, uh, the scientists of ecology and David Orr uh, serve on that committee. uh, and bring them to the attention of you know the political elite. But you know Nelson was um, a Republican, and I, as I explained, when his brother asked me to serve uh, Lawrence Rockefeller, that uh, I'm a Democrat. You know I'm a, I'm a lefty. I'm not you know uh, part of that. But what what happened with Clinton? is there was this massive political shift in America affected by Tony Blair in in England and and Clinton in America when the Democratic Liberal Party with its paradigm from FDR and the New Deal shifted to the right and the Democratic Party became what were Rockefeller Republicans. And when that happened, the wingnuts, the crazies, you know, on the uh, right wing took over the Republican Party and they became these kind of nativists who, you know, entrenched themselves with Trump. And they like Trump simply because he's not part of the liberal elite establishment of uh, Ivy League educated journalists for the nation or, you know, uh, the New York Times and professors and the best and the brightest of JFK and have come in with this lumpen proletariat, know-nothing, you know, uh, aggressive ignorance that's just consummately expressed with Trump. So... You know, all this stuff that we explored back in the 70s, here we are in, you know, nativistic industrialism. And as I said on my Facebook uh, page today, you know, Trump's trying to energize the coal industry and, you know, in the face of climate change, denying it and then spewing out all this stuff. I mean, how benighted can we become? But, you know, um, this is what's happened. And all of that movement of the 60s and 70s has just been, you know, flushed away. I mean, you live in Texas. Austin, of course, is an air, air bubble in the Titanic and is, you know, always described as, the, you know, the most civilized, intellectually developed part of Texas. But around you, you know, if you go drive in your car, you'll, you know what's out there. And I lived in Colorado in, in extreme rural circumstance, so I know what the Southwest is like. Uh, and it's pretty bad.
0: Well, yeah, I think an air bubble in the Titanic's an interesting way to put it. There's I would classify myself as deeply ambivalent about most things. And and like one of those things is uh I think when I first interviewed you back in god, it was 2011, I was writing at the time for a blog for this guy Parag Khanna who wrote a book recently called Connectography and it's basically a work of apologetics for technocratic global managerial paradigm but it's well, done in such a in such a like thoughtful and sexy way and well, you know and he comes out on you know one of the one of the pieces adapted from that book was an essay called here are the five maps the next president of the United States needs to understand and it was all about the industrial and post-industrial interrelationship between all of the countries in North America specifically that like, you can't build a wall in this world. And so, you know, there's, there's that part of it. There's that sense of to borrow like a Rudolf Steiner, like Lucifer Aramon axis, you know, that, that I see the goal. Like I, I acknowledge the value of that project of like attempting to, to honor this, this rhetoric of progress and the betterment of the human condition through you know, this technological solutionism, but it's obviously short sighted. And then at the other side of it, I sympathize with all of these future shocked rural people who have every reason to adopt a sort of uh epical or millennial attitude about things and, and want Ooh. want that charismatic strongman to come in and and help them and yet you look at somebody like Trump and it's it's so clearly and obviously exactly what you you were describing of this collapse in the public imagination between political power and the like the charismatic. Yeah. It's just how do we. Yeah
1: yeah well well, you know that again um, I hate to be the old uh, grumpy geezer saying I told you so but you know the essay in At the Edge of History called The Millennium Under New Management uh, explores that commission on the year 2000 as an appropriation of the millennial as a visionary horizon and it becomes co-opted by the Davos uh, corporate elite you know the, the book you described could be a lecture uh, for Davos. It sounds exactly what they would do in their summer resort in the town that is actually the town uh, that um, Thomas Mann used for his Magic Mountain. So uh, there is this corporate process of appropriation. And as a purist, I was always afraid of that. And so my only way of relating it was to kind of like cross my legs and, and try to maintain my virginity and say no, you know. And uh, that doesn't work either, you know. To have a child, you have to get fucked. So, you know, it's, uh, you have to engage. And I never found, I kept using the Taoist kind of, you know, Wei way Wei inactivity, as a form of activity to try to affect cultural change. And, you know, to be fair, uh, a lot of the ideas we were promoting in the 70s are, are a part of the culture as green values and the way in which everything is advertised as, you know, green and ecologically responsible and stuff like that. So that's the change in the public consciousness that certainly wasn't there in the period of industrial development of America where they just spewed the crap into the air and into the water and and just said this is jobs and progress.
0: So the re- the main reason that I wanted to to get you on the podcast now that I have like a formal vehicle for conversation is that this show is really devoted to this intergenerational wisdom transfer and looking forward, as you know, if you want to adopt, and I think it's, I think it's wise to do so, this sort of uh, monasterial attitude, or rather, like uh, like a monastic disposition to the management of our cultural inheritance in the face of all of this decay and turbulence, you know that that my hope, and you know, in recently I've been like, well, if we don't. If, if AI starts forging all of our recordings and we lose the ability to determine which our artifacts are authentic artifacts of the past and which have been hoaxed by machines for God knows what reason, then maybe the point of this podcast is sort of like lost in the noise. But, like... None- well,
1: the scare the scary thing is compression because you know if acoustically you listen to a Stradivarius you have a wide range of tone and subtlety and complexity but when it's digitalized, it gets compressed, and there's just a lot of stuff that is eliminated from human experience, so you can use that as a metaphor for politics and, and human relationships, uh, you know, sexuality. Uh, I always have this imaginary cartoon for the New Yorker, in which the two couples are in bed with their smartphones, and the guy is texting her, was that good for you? And she <laughs> She, and she's texting back uh, you know, 6 out of 10 or something. So uh, that you know, and, and as I walk the streets in Portland everybody's looking at their smartphone you know, and thumbing and texting and they're not looking around. So uh, you know, the Kind of disassociation of the sensibility to use t s. Eliot's phrase has been implemented uh, much more strongly uh, by these new technologies than you know forty years ago when I was you know uh, imagining you know the direction in which we were going.
0: Mm. So yeah, so there's there seems there's no way that this project can really be anything more than giving the future generations a straw through which to sip history, you know. But, nonetheless, you know, I don't see, other than, like, the Long Now Foundation, I don't see a lot of, or, or like, the Wayback Machine and the Archive Project Online, which, you know, they hosted all of the E.F. Schumacher uh, talks and the Lindisfarne tapes, and, you know, I'm deeply indebted to them for that. So, but I don't see that many people that are really working on uh, like, archival and, you know, this preemptive cultural storage and transfer. And so that's what this is. And as a because of that, I feel like the work that you did and that everyone, all the Lindisfarne fellows did, is sort of this... If the noetic polity itself were an unsung hero, like, if we can regard it as an individual, you know, within this this new age in which we are bound to form ever more bizarre and intimate meta personal associations like that. This, this group of people as a phenomenon, as an entity in history is so important. And reading your book, it was really this, this sort of poignant experience because you were so candid about the lessons that you learned in the, along the way. And the, you know, the, advice that you have for people who are trying to organize future intellectual concerts and counterfoil institutions and and that's really it is that i really you know after you know reading all of these these like soaring intellectual treatises and and you know works of history and really appreciating your your voice as a performer of knowledge art that this book felt so much more deeply personal to hear your stories of childhood and about you know homeschooling your kids and like this is that 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 human part of it you know the funding of Linda's and how you you know you felt like you you know you might have managed to carry the project farther had you swallowed the bitter pill like you were saying earlier and gotten more politically involved and so that's the that's the space that I want to hold for this is is to. Appreciate this work and hope that this interview uh, turns more people on to what you were doing and the influence that you had and all of these people had in our culture.
1: Well, you know, when you get to be uh, my age, you you look back and you think, well, you know, on that bifurcation fork in the road, I went that way, and what if I went the other way? And so you kind of, you're not yet in Bardo and dead, but you're sort of in a Bardo where you're reflecting on your incarnation and thinking of of all of those things. And I would say that... um, there's always a kind of a quality of a horizon that every youthful generation, we had Gregory Bateson and James Lovelock and, and you know, um, those kind of elders of the tribe as our horizon at Lindisfarne. I founded Lindisfarne in my 30s. Uh, I went through academia very fast. I was a full professor at 34, and, and uh, so I had played... And finesse the um, the game at MIT, and and then when I went to Canada to get away from the Maoist takeover of my department in the 60s, there were all these suburban Berkeley radicals who thought Mao was you know a folk hero and didn't realize he was a genocidal maniac. Uh, so I said the hell with this and, and quit and went to Canada as a you know a way of getting out of being part of that thought police of the industrial you know military state. And uh, there was no Lindisfarne option at MIT because it was either Chomsky or Ithilda Solopoul, an apologist for the Vietnam War, and you either had to be on the flight shuttle to Washington to you know tell them how to you know run the Vietnam War and the American Empire or you were part of the extreme left with Chomsky who was very strident and there was no third way of spirituality and everything that Linda energized. So when I was in Canada I heard the charismatic, uh, Ivan Illich who had written these books and articles for the New York Review of Books in the 60s uh, that became his book Deschooling Society and he was the one that articulated the counterfoil institution but ironically his own counterfoil institution that was called CDOC, Center for Intercultural Documentation in Cuernavaca, Mexico really didn't do much uh, and had very little effect on the culture. I I would say that Lindisfarne had twice the effect that Illich uh, had but uh, it, uh, it was the first time I had come across this idea of the individual as institution and actually breaking loose. So I decided to travel around the world looking, you know, at first Soleri's Arcosanti and, you know, and then I went to Germany and talked with Von Weizsacker at his center and and uh, went to Oroville and looked at, you know, the Indian spiritual utopian community. And then came back and set up Lindisfarne in uh, in New York. So the Counterfoil Institution is a fractal. It's, uh, to use Ted Roszak's phrase, person, planet. Uh, it's the individual and the group. It's kind of like Bauhaus with all the talented architects and philosophers and painters like Paul Clay, uh, And it... Um, It had an effect, but it was very short-lived, so I argued in passages that these entities were not institutions but enzymes. They affected a kind of molecular bonding and affected larger institutions, but they themselves weren't meant to become institutions, and so Lindisfarne, which was a temporary phenomenon of Celtic Christianity uh, getting absorbed by Roman Christianity, uh, was my metaphor for uh, this transformation and uh, you know I had a mystic say uh, that this was all karma because I was Saint Cuthbert in my last life and had been part of Lindisfarne uh, and was on the committee you know interfacing with Celtic Christianity at the Synod of Whitby with Roman Christianity and so you know one can take that as a kind of imaginative trope I certainly wouldn't take it literally but um that uh, that was what one mystic uh, in the New Age uh, said. So, I think these in- individual institutions have had an effect on, you know, Evergreen State University or, you know, uh, Bard College or Oberlin, which has an environmental studies program with our Linus Fund fellow, uh, David Orr. So it it has. Uh, not been entirely an exercise in necessary futility uh, which is a phrase that Baker Roshi used when we I brought the Lindisfarne fellows to meet with the, the big Rockefeller Foundation and we were on the top of Rockefeller Center in this kind of boardroom setup up with all these you know mucky mucks who were the giving out the, the millions and Gre- I, Gregory Bateson was there and and we couldn't breach the dialogue between industrial and ecological they just didn't get it and um uh, so as we're going down the elevator gregory who was 6 feet was 6 feet 6 and a big uh, heavy set guy too he leaned against the the wall of the elevator and said ha ah. Uh, you know and Baker was smiling with a sort of zen humor said well that was a necessary exercise in futility and so you know maybe these sapiental circles which is Margaret Mead's phrase for these uh, phenomena maybe that's what they're uh, you know supposed to do uh, when you know uh, was it who was it that said there was the writer in England, uh, who said a writer doesn't like to see his ox turned into Bovril, you know, and so when a movie is made of his novel. And when you're the intellectual getting digested and absorbed, it can either be thrilling because you really want to become famous uh, and you want to become a public intellectual and you want to, you know, uh, name drop and be part of the, the power group um, they love it but if you're trying to energize cultural authority uh then it's difficult in America. You can get away with it, I think, more successfully in Europe, uh, where there is this tradition of gray eminences. And in Paris, you know, once you've done something of value as an intellectual, then you're part of it for your life. It isn't like, what are you doing next? You know, do it again, do it again, do it again. Um, So American culture based on this kind of hucksterism and boomerism and success culture, is very resistant to that sensibility. So it really was a very European sensibility that I uh, was energizing. Mm-hmm. and. And these particular concerts of ideas, which were tremendously exciting, the Lindisfarne conferences, and I, I kept it going for forty years. The last conference, you know, we started in seventy-two, and we ended in twenty-twelve. So that's a that's a you know two generations, a good hunk of time. Did you come out of the University of Texas uh, subculture?
0: No, I came out of the University of Kansas, where. Oh. We would have uh, birthday parties for Charles Darwin every year in the <laughs> Natural History Museum. It was a very similar—you talk about like the, with the air bubble in the Titanic. It, it was uh, a, a small island of rampant evolutionists. You Did know?
1: you ever visit West Jackson's uh,
0: Land Institute in Salina, Kansas? I've driven past it, but I never actually—you know, I, I didn't really come to appreciate— its significance until I was already acquainted with your work. The same goes for, you know, like I, I found uh, coming into being in 2009 while I was living in Phoenix, the same time I discovered Arcosanti. So nah. it was just like there was a, around, I guess I was 25. So like around that time, all of this stuff suddenly became interesting to me. And I only later learned that all of these different uh, factors were we're swirling together in those intellectual concerts that you talk about. Like all of these people that suddenly became interesting all at once. It was like I, I reached the uh, the the age of sensitivity to that stuff. But
1: <laughs> I think every generation has these. Um- things that we hear about later. You know, there was Tribuco College in uh, uh, Santa Barbara with Gerald Hurd, and then Michael Murphy in the 60s founded Esalen, and that was, you know, very influential. And, you know, if you go back into 20s or 30s, and there were always, you know, these small groups, you know, like Miles Davis and the Birth of the Cool in the 50s. And we're always a minority, you know. I mean, uh, if we look at the Enlightenment, we're talking about, what, 12 intellectuals in all of Europe, you know. (laughs) (laughs) And and, and I use that metaphor, I think, in one of my books where if you were an extraterrestrial and you – Flying saucered into Florence in the 15th century and said, Hey, I hear you guys are having a Renaissance. And they said, What? You know, what are three painters mean? You know, it's still the Middle Ages for them. And so everybody's in, you know, different times, uh, laminar flow. Some are faster and more ultraviolet and high energy, and others are very wide, slow, and sluggish, you know, and that's just, you know, how nature works.
0: That's. it's very similar to an interview I read with uh, science fiction author William Gibson yesterday. Oh yeah. yeah. He, you know he's famous for coining the term cyberspace, but also one of, he he's frequently qu- quoted as saying, "The future is already here. it's just distributed unevenly." And, yeah. And in this uh, in this latest interview he he was being asked about dystopia and he said, "You know, there's so many places around the world that like basically most first world dystopian fiction isn't about the future. It's about a future in which America looks like the global south." You know, yeah. like this, so the dystopia is here. It's just distributed unevenly. And that yeah. that's been very keen on my mind lately you know, this book showed up for me at a time when I've been in like a sort of apex or what I hope is an apex of this this sort of difficult moral deliberation about where I belong. Because I didn't have this exact same trajectory as you where I managed to, uh, f- you know, fully ride the rail and excel through my entire academic Prospect, you know, like the, this, 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 you know. I saw the the professorial gig at the end of this rainbow, and then at some point I derailed. Yeah, and you know, it's been. I, I realized this year that it has been for my entire adult life that I have been sort of walking around with a, an open wound of this wanting this fellowship that I have mistakenly associated with academic institutional affiliation and trying yeah. and seeking it out in the festival culture where you know like you talk about a lot of the you know the, a lot of these communal uh living groups in the 60s and 70s is like rapidly anti-intellectual and only now finally swinging back around so that festivals that I'm interested in these days now at least actually have really robust and intelligent speaker series but it's a, it's a rarity mm-hmm. still so it's not an academic world and it's not in the in the festival world and even though those two things seem like they're sort of growing into one another through the the lubricating medium of the conference it's still it's a very living question for me and for so many people i know how in an age of you know this, like you were describing the, and also David Byrne described recently in an essay where he was talking about the. It seems that the primary function of the internet is to make human interaction unnecessary. So, <laughs> so you know, Sky- this, skyping instead of you flying up here to interview me. Oh, yeah, you know, actually, last time I was in New York, uh, Mitch Mignano and I almost uh, no. paid you a visit, but you know,
1: New York is still a long way from Portland.
0: It's it's a shorter drive then Austin to New York. But <laughs> that's so, true. So this, this issue of a sort of almost like wandering Jewish kind of quality, you know, it's like, I, you know, you've, you've cast this era in light of the, you know, the sort of fall of, of, uh, early Celtic Christianity and, you know, the, um, the entrance into this dark age, which makes a lot of sense f- for me, but, uh, it, in i i resonate more or less equally with and you gave a really excellent talk about this that's in the lindisfarne tapes about exodus and about you know wandering in the desert like waiting for the next structure to emerge and and having to be you know it it being sort of like a a lesson or a test in in faith and this question of like is it wise at this point like if you want if you want to exert influence in the world, if you want to like contribute and make a difference as a young person, does it make sense to try and like wiggle into one of these enormous corporations that are now sort of like stretching to include these innovation labs inside of them? And these, I mean, it's, it's like, I'm a little too smart to know that I won't be like appropriated you know, that I won't just be, like, digested and, like, made into a product if I do that. And I think that this is, you know, this is the issue for so many of us at this time is, like, how to maintain integrity and yet still find that sense of, of like, actual living community with human beings that you're in the same room with and that you're involved in that same vision and project with. And it's, it's a mess, these
1: days yeah well i think each each person makes his own dance in response to you know the laws of gravity that you know if we didn't have gravity we wouldn't have ballet as i you know i think i said somewhere and so um we uh, you know lindisfarne was a way of trying to create a different quality rather than the academic lecture uh I found just because I'm an Irishman with the gift of gab that I um, could turn being an intellectual into what I call a stand-up intellectual. I would you know have an audience of two thousand people and I would just stand at the edge of the stage and get away from the podium and I would you know talk for fifty minutes without notes and So it was, you know, it was a concert of ideas and then I began stumbling on this genre that I called Wissenkunst which you correctly translated as knowledge art and I um, organized other people that I met in my travels. and so the Lindisfarne conferences, you know EF Schumacher was like a rock star and and so we had a, a, a group of maybe 90 people in the audience and then these talks, not lectures, for a concert that became for a conference that became really as I said a concert of ideas. So um, the elders like Gregory Bateson and James Lovelock, you know, Lynn Margulis. They became our intellectual horizon of the, the the wisdom of the elders, the the elders of the tribe. And I was not of their generation. You know, I was in my thirties, and Bateson was I don't know in the seventies, or late sixties, maybe in seventy three or four. And so I think that's you know, pretty characteristic, and so people like Mitch Mignano came to Lindisfarne, and he was, you know, a younger, you know, person with a different, you know, sensibility, but he, you know, listened and participated and hung, you know, hung out with us for a while, and so I think that's just, you know, how it goes, and now because of the complexity of the inner Penetrating of cultures of Europe and you know Latin America and Asia and the rest of it. Um, there's a lot of uh, creative possibility. You know, you can do a kind of fusion jazz by you know drawing off many different uh, elements instead of just the European intellectual, the Enlightenment culture of Europe. And I, I think that's you know all to the good. What happens often you know as with fascism and Nazi Germany and Mussolini in Italy uh, is the paradigm shift is preceded by a nativistic movement a, a reaction that tries to hold on to the values that are actually disappearing like you know in the entrepreneur the culture of greed and money the everything that Trump crystallizes and consolidates but I don't think um, you know that's going to last. I think actually, as I predicted, Trump will be you know removed in twenty eighteen by the Republicans themselves because he's threatening the Republican party. He could ruin it for a whole generation. and we've had a generation of liberalism from FDR to you know Kennedy and Carter and on, and so this reaction against that, this individualism of the libertarian ideal of no government you know that government is best which governs least that's nonsense when you've got a complex technological society with nuclear weapons you know we're not living in farms anymore you know so that's got no future whatsoever and the tough Part of the Republicans is they only have negation. They don't actually have a, philosophy, a coherent philosophy of governance. They just say no, no taxes, no laws, no inter- regulation, no environmental protection agency, no, no, no. But you know, um, you can't uh, you can't actually create a civilization or a culture and you know live on that so it's up to your generation to look at this and come up with a synthesis maybe of opposites uh anantodromia and and, um, and create you know the oxymoronic state of you know government and in rugged individualism
0: there's you know at the end of thinking together at the edge of history you make a mention About the transition of money from a liquid, from a liquid state to a gaseous state. And I was really touched by this because I've been tracking in, in keeping with what you just said, I've been, I've been tracking the sociocultural landing of cryptocurrencies into, yeah. And like the way, yeah. Yeah. The way that all of this stuff is like, uh, Ethereum, the cryptocurrency that's like, allows people to create smart contracts. So it's not just a money source, but it's a dis- it's a distributed ledger that allows people to make any kind of social agreement and then it's on the record on everyone who's hosting a node in the network and so you can do marriages on this, you know, you could do voting on this. And they actually use uh, in the language for Ethereum, you know, it's already ethereal and then they talk about the the uh, computer power used to to execute a transaction on a smart contract as gas so are oh. like it's the language is there like it's like the this stuff is being expressed through the zeitgeist in this way and i'm and you know meanwhile this is the year that universal basic income has really become a major conversational point again in the american public and You've got people like Doug Rushkoff writing an op-ed in the LA Times suggesting that that universal basic income is actually, you know, a a self-serving maneuver on the part of Silicon tech billionaires like Mark Zuckerberg and even um, it was like Linda Rothschild. A couple years ago, gave a talk at Davos saying basically we need we need to give people a basic income if we're going to completely dominate this game or it's not fun for anyone anymore and we lose our <laughs> consumer base and so I, I I'm it seems like we're really we're getting to this point where two kind of major things are happening. I'm curious to know how you you know what your thoughts are on these things, uh, especially in relationship to this issue of. You know funding the institution you know and like what it what it means to actually uh you know generate a sustainable organization to actually I've, I've been a part of so many like premature visionary projects in even my short life so far yeah that just failed because they didn't they didn't have the thing yeah
1: no i i discovered you know when i set up lindisfarne as a kind of counterfoil institution that i became you know basically a salesman and had to you know make my pitch like a hollywood you know director making his pitch to get a producer for his film and uh to keep it alive for 40 years you know i had developed all these new skills of over the years raising millions of dollars um and so if you're running a college or a dance troupe or an orchestra or anything, uh, you someone in the group has to learn how to deal with money. And I uh, think I failed uh, even though I succeeded in raising millions by being a 60s kind of countercultural type who was suspicious of money. You know, it was this, you know, as I said, my virginity. I crossed my legs and was afraid of violation. And uh, I didn't really come fully to understand you know, the importance of money. But now that we all bank online, what is this kind of electronic blurb? But suddenly somebody wires you money, you know, once a month on your payroll and it ends up in your bank and, and it never was, you know, gold and Fort Knox uh, you know, solid it was never fluid currency that somebody actually paid you. It wasn't even, you know, Gutenberg paper where you had a paycheck that you took to the bank it was suddenly this just electronic signal and suddenly you've got money in the bank and you can you know know, eat and pay your rent or whatever and uh, I think uh, anyone who's dealing with culture and arts and creativity somebody in the group has to understand you know money and what it's going to become and certainly to keep the game going if constantly we're shifting into AI and robotics and uh, And making people redundant and, you know, having ATM machines instead of bank tellers, you know, and now they say teachers can be replaced by interactive computers that are more sensitive to your level. If you're trying to learn, you know, French, then instead of la plume de Matante with some, you know teacher at the classroom you have a computer that instantly understands your level and begins to work with it by giving you triggered words back um, what are we going to do with people you know and uh, we got a lot of them and so a guaranteed annual income is just necessary so the economy can survive and the and the billionaires you talk about the Zuckerbergs and so forth uh, can still have their you know, game, and so uh, the uh, you know the guaranteed annual income is something I've you know discussed as well uh, as as Rushkoff. I've met Rushkoff; he's a very smart guy, uh, and I uh, you know think that that's that has to be you know the medium is the message, as McLuhan said. So uh, we have to understand money more effectively. So when. When I set up Lindisfarne, I thought I was energizing a vision or an idea. And what I became in reality was a routine operational manager raising millions of dollars from, you know, Rockefellers and foundations in New York and stuff like that. And what I didn't understand was how to generate wealth, you know, if if one could have a you know, a product like you had a, you know, a a musical rock band that, you know, and you had concerts and, and you, you know, made money that way that the group has to somehow, you know, not just survive on one person's ability to raise money. So everybody in the community was dependent on Bill to keep the party going, you know, and they, uh, they didn't generate any of the, you know, the money that it took to keep it going. So, Uh, I failed to really understand, you know, money. And now we're in an economy where money is, you know, uh, a gas or, you know, even more ethereal than that. It's no longer on the physical plane to follow up on your metaphor of the etheric plane. And that value is kind of generated by charisma, to speak kind of Rudolf Steiner uh, mystically, great souls kind of make waves (coughs) in the ether, uh, and even when they're dead there is this kind of lingering force field in the etheric that is the traces of Yeats or James Joyce or anybody, uh, you know, a Beethoven or whatever. Uh, They leave this kind of lingering trace and that has uh, energy and value it becomes part of the extended body of the civilization. It's a subtle body of us that the individual appropriates you know the five she's of yoga that are classic in uh, in, in uh, Kundalini yoga. So you know we'll see how your generation and and the younger ones coming up uh, relate to it it might you know, come to a crash as the haves and have not get so grossly caricatured in this Victorian way with Trump. Uh, You know, Trump, in a way, is flushing out the tanks. I mean, he is just so, you know, utterly repulsive uh, Mm. that we can't, uh, you know, you can't really have a culture like that. Uh, A few rich individuals may you know love him because he's not a intellectual elite as it was defined in the JFK best and brightest era so they think this lumpen proletariat ethos is you know the way to go but that's that's reactionary and the reactions don't you know last forever
0: mm. there's that you know in in reading about your difficulties with the fundraising aspect of Lindisfarne that you just discussed you made a point in uh, thinking together about how the there was like this this puzzle to it, which was that people want to meet the charismatic figurehead of the organization. That that's that's what allows the money to flow through. And yet, the act of fundraising is itself, like you said, this routine operational process. So, like we're back to that that uh, that confusion in American culture. Between the charismatic and the routine, and the authoritative and the powerful, and it's and and it is sort of reflected in the way that you see these boom and bust cycles occurring in like highly volatile cryptocurrency market. You know where it is literally like the the value of this thing because it's no longer controlled by a central agency is. Uh, deeply and totally subject to hype and so you actually you get to watch it in a much faster uh, like a much smaller time horizon a shorter horizon Mm -hmm. Where you know you know that that's how the stock market works, like yeah. we know that that's how money works now, yeah, But yeah. like to to actually see it to see you know my father's my father will not get into bitcoin, like i've you know I've told him, oh, it's you know this spectacular investment, you know you've got money to lose, go for it, and he's like, no, it's just not like the older I get, the more conservative I get with my my investment, and like now we're at this point where. You know, I'm not really sure things seem to have flipped that there's been an inversion where all of the strategies that my parents offer to me seem like the high risk investment. Like everything that seemed stable a generation ago is now like you kind of have to be deluding yourself to believe it. Like you have to you have to be future shocked enough to want to go back to, like you talk about this with your relationship with Wendell Berry. And this actually, this came to me, I was reading um, the American replacement of nature last year while I was in Portugal on my first trip to Europe. Mm. And this thing that you said about the pastoral versus the mystic and like wanting to settle down and put up a fence and tend a small piece of land. It's a very understandable human desire but then, yeah. but then for the mystic, for the person whose, whose sole role it is, you know, the role of their soul, not their exclusive role, to be out into the world and in that sense of, you know, like I said, like the Jewish wandering, that God appears as the moving whirlwind. And that, yeah. you know, this has been, this is like very alive for me and for so many people I know right now, the sense of, like, are we a generation of mystics? Like, it feels like... uh for those that are sensitive to this, this uh, very narrowly prescribed Renaissance, you know the, this this early stage of it, that the better we get at answering questions, the better we get at revealing our ignorances, and so even Kevin Kelly says, you know that that we're approaching an age where the answer is almost zero in value, and the question is the most important thing, and so that's a point where science. And religion sort of approach this asymptote. and you actually have, like you talk about in thinking together, you have this uh, this effloration of uh, like a more mystical or spiritual science. The, the price of that is living in a world where nothing is stable, nothing is guaranteed, where it's suddenly scientific and practical to adopt this this like rigorous, uh, open scientific process. This like strict adherence that ha- that brooks no room, that offers us no opportunity to like slink into the current sort of church of science orthodoxy like we're stuck in this mm-hmm. in like a like a class 4 whitewater rapid of, of history well
1: right. the, the trick of creativity is to turn your disadvantages into advantages and see what is negative that is actually a possibility releasing you from premature consolidation you know if you try to bottle the blue of the sky you don't understand the atmosphere so uh, there is a quality That's always reactionary, you know. If you look at the shift in the Renaissance from feudal kingdoms to nation states, what do you have? You have the explosion of pastoral art, in which you know Sir Philip Sidney is writing Arcadia, and people are talking about shepherds piping, you know, to nymphs in you know in the woodland. And that's not what's going on. That's the pastoral. And so Wendell Berry, you know, this family farm artifact in the middle of a planetary culture doesn't understand it at all. He's consolidated he's crystallized and he's very much a pastoral vision but because he's in the Jeffersonian ethos of America uh, he very effectively can play you know American music like if somebody like rock would quote folk music you know, and riff on it, but take it into an electronic medium, you know, and not just be the traditional folk revival of, say, uh, you know, the early 60s as opposed to, you know, when the uh, counterculture and acid and everything like that came in and then suddenly music went electronic, there was a whole different kind of thing. Uh, so you're always going to have, you know, Wendell Berries and... Bill Thompson's and you know and part of Lindisfarne was to bring those opposites together so Wendell was in the room with John Todd or Jim Lovelock talking about you know and and Wendell was very upset with Lovelock's Gaia hypothesis you know it wasn't (laughs) rooted enough for him and it scared the shit out of him so that's uh, that's just gonna happen but what we've seen now with this Trump thing, just like Nazi Germany with Hitler, is you know, that people individuals can do a lot of damage they can hold up the progress of time, you know for a whole generation, you know and so it took a concerted effort with America joining European civilization, you know, to get rid of, you know, Mussolini and, but what happened was we had to create the deep state and the military-industrial complex to do it and so we become what we hate uh and we end up becoming our enemy and suddenly america the land of the free and the home of the brave and the victor against hitler becomes you know ruled by a deep state that nobody knows who's on the committee and is an industrial military complex that whose economy cannot survive without a war so every generation we must have a war to keep the thing going you know And we haven't solved that paradox.
0: Thanks so much for listening. Hope you enjoyed that. Part two will be up in just a few days. Not even going to make you wait a whole week for it. So stay tuned. Subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher or Google Play, wherever you go for podcasts. And also be sure to check out the rest of the cool shows on MindPod Network, where this show is hosted. Big thanks to Noah Lambert and everyone else there. Mindpod Network is a super cool confluence of interesting conversations from people like Zach Leary, Corey Allen, Michael Phillip, Daniele Bolelli. a Bunch of real badasses there if you ask me. Be sure to go to mindpodnetwork.com and check it out. And if you'd like to support the show, patreon.com slash Michael Garfield. Thanks again.